The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yes, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Welcome to the house of the Lord for worship this morning on the first day of the week. The Gospels, all four, are very specific in saying that it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. So, we come religiously every Sunday to worship because of that fact of a resurrected, of a risen Lord and Savior. He is mighty. This meeting could be bittersweet. We are at the conclusion of our revival services. But as we have seen, as, as Brother Rodney has been speaking, this mighty God who is so powerful in death, he conquered death by his resurrection. So at the conclusion of our revivals, this is not the end. This is the beginning of the revival that we can get from this series of meetings as we go forth. Brother Rodney has asked that we read Romans chapter 4 for a beginning this morning. While we do that, be thinking at the end of this, I'll ask for your prayer requests of what we can pray for for you. Romans chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and, those, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, 
there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through the unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Amen. So we're going to go to prayer. Brother Ryan Flora, I'll ask you to pray. What can we pray for you for or praise God about? Phil. I think there ought to be an issue of praise in every heart. We know that things are going downhill on earth in our whole community and everything. And yet, Lord has not removed his hands of blessing. And here we are today. We need to be just exceedingly grateful. Praise God for not removing his blessing even when things are going downhill. Thank you. Anyone else? Kurt. Pray for Milton Jim, a recovering alcoholic, working through some struggles, but pray for him that the Lord will keep working a mighty work in his life. Bart. Let's continue to pray for Camille Bowman and the, uh, the new team down there at Morion. Uh, they prepare to teach the little one also to cleanse and grab my back safely. Pray for Camille. She's serving at Torion for a year. Pray for Clems to get back safely. Cephas. Remember Haiti. Very good. Randy. Remember our old brothers and sisters that they be faithful to the end. They're working through health issues. We've seen Jerry's email this week. I was actually inspired by that. So check that out. Any more? Very good. Let's bow in prayer, Brother Ryan.
speaker to you, Brother Rodney Kimmel from the Berean congregation. It's always a joy for me to introduce him as a minister of the gospel. He and I go back several years. We were reminiscing the other night, and it is great to be here, Rodney. Bless you today. Greetings. Been looking forward to this message. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Uh, throughout this week, starting Wednesday evening, we opened our Bibles to Psalm 130 and we've been digging in, as it were, into this psalm. And these eight verses uh, encapsulate a lot. And as we look at this psalm, we've, we've taken various verses out of the text, and we've used them for inspiration for a message, and we stopped at verse 4. So it doesn't mean that we're going to be here till 6 this evening. It means that we're going to try to, to combine 5 through 8, just so that you know. This psalm is a song of degrees, a song of ascents. It's a pilgrim song or psalm. It would have been one that would have been sung as they made their way to Jerusalem on a high day, a feast day. It's also a progressive psalm in its thoughts, its ideas that are being conveyed in a way of worship, bringing this psalmist and hopefully us out of the depths, out of the depths of sin unto redemption found here in verse 8. I'm going to read these eight verses. I'm going to exposit just a, a brief bit and then we're going to get into the context that we see on this last half of the psalm. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, and my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning, I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The context of this psalm, starting in the depths, the depths of sin, and the psalmist is crying out to be delivered, that the Lord would hear his voice, that he would hear his cry, and recognizes if God, the, the almighty supreme sovereign God, the Lord that has created the earth and the heavens and everything that is in there would hold yet one count against this man. It says if he would mark his iniquities, he said, Lord, who shall stand? And then in the last verse uh, that we dealt with last evening, verse 4, he says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And that, that really, to me, is, is where we're, we're, we're starting tonight. We're starting with that recognition. I, I said tonight, I meant today. I, I'd so practice in my mind that I wouldn't say today, last evening. So anyway, I, I just messed that up. But I want to detract from the message. But uh, ministers do know what time it is most of the time. But last evening we dealt with that thought of forgiveness and, and knowing that there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Being able to go to a holy God that, that is against, his wrath is against sinful men. And that paradox of facing 
our sin and our guilt, but turning and going to that God that is able to forgive. That's, that's a powerful, powerful thought. And then here in the 5th, 6th, and 7th verse, and, and I understand that these are couplets. Like I said, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 are paired as also. And he says, and I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning, I say more than they that watch for the morning. And that, that comprises this thought and, and brevity here of just hoping and trusting in the promises of God. His word says it and I believe it. And I have hope in it. And consequently, he moves on and says, and then let the Israel, Israel hope in the Lord. So this is now taking off of the promise and we're, we're, we're focusing again on God, but we're, we're ministering to the people. We're allowing the people to understand in an evangelistic way, there is hope in God. I've experienced hope, therefore I'm giving hope to others and I want them to see hope. And as I said at the onset in on Wednesday evening that 130, Psalm 130, is, is really finishing with the nation of Israel. This is reflective of hope that Israel should have. Okay? And, and, I, and I don't want to take away from that when we see this set in the psalm. But making this psalm relatable, as Jesus said, he said... All of these things, he says, the Psalms, and they speak of me too. So we have to recognize we can find Christ in here, and we've been aiming to show Christ in this Psalm as well. When I look at this, these five, or these four verses, but starting in verse five to eight, I don't think of the nation of Israel. And I had given my, my sermon title, or, or one of them, one of many, I, I always struggle to title a message. Um, but I said, what I say, grace to Israel. I think was what I had, had given as a name. But when I'm thinking of Israel this morning, I'm thinking of Jacob. Thinking of that man, specifically. And if there was a subtitle, or maybe a better title, it might even be the strength or the power of grace. And so I want to turn over to uh, Romans 4 for, for a little bit of, of brief introduction Maybe gain a little traction here uh, in some doctrine that Paul taught before we go into Genesis 33. So the aim of, of reading through Romans 4, and I'm, I'm going to go brief here for the sake of time, but is, is understanding, and we, we kind of finished up, or we did finish up in Romans 3 last evening in our concluding thoughts about being justified freely by His grace. Apart from the deeds of law, that a man is justified by Christ's righteousness. Okay? That was where we left. That he might be the just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So that, that's the thought where we, we finished. And then Brother Kidron read in Romans 4. And in Romans 4, especially towards the end of this chapter, there's this focus on the promise and Abraham's faith in the promise. And, and I think that, that we need, as we consider the text before us in Psalm 130, in hoping in God's word and trusting in God's word, and ultimately God's promise, it goes further than us just looking back to Christ. Okay? And I'll say this again, and I appreciated the opening, our brother's opening, in dealing with looking at our faith. And I think that the Bible would teach that we should be introspective. We should review our lives we should we should 
But I've said this, and, and I've, I've, I will say it again, that if we're so consumed at looking at our faith, our eyes will soon be consumed only on ourselves, and they will not be singularly set on Christ. He's our hope. Christ is our hope. Our faith has an object. And that object has got to be Christ. It can't be our faith. Okay? That, that has to be the way that it works. And, and we find this, and this may seem uh, almost exact opposite of what I said, but it isn't exactly, because what we find with Abraham and Sarah is Abraham looks at his body, now being dead, and the deadness of his wife's womb. It isn't that he's ignorant of those things. It isn't that he doesn't recognize their inability to, in their natural bodies, to procreate and have children. It isn't that at all. In fact, he does analyze that. He assesses it and said it's dead. But I believe that God has promised and will deliver on his promise. So he chooses, even in spite of himself, in spite of his wife, in spite of his circumstances, to trust God's word and God's promise and hope in what God has said. That's faith. That was the faith of Abraham. Despite his current circumstances, he, choose, he chose to look ahead to what God had said that he would do and what he said that he would accomplish. And so that vein of thought is the same faith that saves us. It's the same faith that saved us at the beginning when we trusted in Christ. We didn't just trust in what Christ did at the cross on Calvary in securing our salvation, but we trusted that what he did would bring us home to glory because we had to continue to live in this life. We had to continue to live and fight and battle against sin all the way till we die and still trust that God will bring us home despite ourselves, despite our failures, and trusting that God, as a merciful and a faithful high priest, will forgive our sins. That, brothers and sisters, is a working faith that will bring us home because it, beside us, it's looking to God. So that's really the foundation that we want to look at. But when I mentioned the strength of grace, I had a specific verse in mind, and that is the 16th verse of Romans 4. I think, and, and maybe I've made much of this, I told Kidron that many times when I deal with this verse, I struggle to articulate it in a way that's palatable. And I mean that in, in the, the realest form. But when I look at the 16th verse, I think that it's, it's the pinnacle of all Romans 4. To me, when I want to, if I were to, uh, if I were to just say, okay, real quick, these, all these verses are laying out. Choose the one that's the best. Choose the one that's the most powerful. I would, I would pick up 16. I probably wouldn't let go of it because this one to me is powerful. Because it, it, to me it gives, it gives perspective, it gives clarity on this message of faith, grace, and the promise, and the hope, and the trust of God. So let me, let me read this and then we'll just open it up briefly. He says, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace... To the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You say, well, why do you pick that up? I pick that up because when I look at this, it shows how integral faith is to the promise. Faith brings us to the promise, right? Faith allows us to be justified freely apart from the deeds of the law. Faith is the entrance or the conduit or the bridge or the highway to God. But 
there's an aspect here that we cannot remove because without it, faith is not possible. Because it doesn't just depend on our faith, it depends on something. In fact, and this is where if you're visual at all, it, it says, and actually the ESV, it says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So there's strength in grace to support the promise. The promise was given, but it has no power. It has no strength if it were not for grace holding the promise. And faith is the entrance in to the promise because grace has held it out and has extended it. Okay? I hope that's clear. Because I think that, you, that what I'm going to say needs to be articulated and weighted in Scripture. And I want you to value what I say by Romans 4.16. So when I'm, when I'm preaching here out of Genesis 33 and we're talking about God's grace and I'm communicating God's grace, which is a marvelous subject, I don't want you to undervalue it. I want you to esteem it as the Bible has esteemed it, that there's power in grace. I think even in Christian circles, we undervalue grace because we often, myself included, when we hear somebody is extending grace, we say, that's weak. That is pathetic because they're just acquiescing. They're taking the easy road out. Brothers and sisters, if you've actually had to extend biblical and God's agape love-giving grace, that is hard. There has to be strength there. And that's what I want to convey in this message, that grace is not flippant. Grace has strength. And if it were not for grace... The promise would not be able to be entered into by faith. Okay? And that's what we see ultimately in Christ. But God is behind this whole thing, orchestrating this so that He can bring us to Him. That's the gospel. So I want to turn into Genesis 33 and really in the vein and the thought of hoping and trusting. Go ahead and turn there, and I'm just going to read these last four verses in Psalm 130. Before we get in there, and I, I hope we're not going to go too long on this, but I'm not going to quit. So if somebody's diabetic or needs to eat, just leave and you're not going to offend me. He says, and, and, I, and so this, this, these four verses I chose in, in dealing with Genesis 33, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. What we're going to find in Genesis 33, so I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version, we're going to find that promise is God tells Jacob to go home. Because, and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I wait on the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. So you've got to keep that in your mind. If you, if you kind of miss up what is being said as you get caught up in the emotion of the story, don't forget that Jacob had been explicitly told by God, I'm going to do something through you. But he's going to see some very impossible odds very quickly. And then he says, My soul waited for the Lord more than they that watched for the morning. We're going to see Jacob waiting till the morning. And he's in battle. He's actually praying as he's wrestling with God. And then verse 7, it says, Let Israel hope in the Lord, for the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. That's going to be the day after. 
And then in verse 8, he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I think that that, if we don't get to it, is found later in Genesis 48 when he's saying, God has been good. He's done me. He's done me right. He's done all of these things that he said he would do. And that's amazing to me. But the relatability of, of Genesis 32 and 33 is, is powerful, and that's really where I want to set these verses out of Psalm 130 right down in this text. So let's read, and I'll, I'll open, and we'll kind of explain as we go along. <clears throat> and Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and Jacob saw them and said, This is God's host, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother, under the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak to my lord Esau, the servant Jacob, saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban, and have stayed there until now. I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. I have sent to tell my lord that I might find grace in thy sight. And I want to stop there for a minute. So right off the bat, in Genesis 32, we find two very, very important things. One, we have to remember the conflict at birth... That was between Esau and Jacob. Constantly. But I want to also bring something out just because we're reading a narrative about Jacob who later will become Israel. Who God has given his promise to. Jacob is not a do-gooder here with his brother Esau. He's not taking the high road. In fact, if anybody has just right to be upset, it's Esau. Esau has every right to be upset at Jacob, his brother. In terms of being vindicated... Jacob is not the one that's in the right. And, it's, and if we left off, you remember last time, Esau was intentions, had intentions to kill his brother. So those are all the thoughts that Jacob's got in his mind. And he says this in the fifth verse, and this is the context. You know, a lot of times when we look in scriptures, it's hard for us to find the context and how to think about the passage. Just like we were last night with uh, Numbers 21. Unless Jesus had told us about the uh, serpents and, and being lifted up on the pole, we wouldn't have context for this. But I think we have a little bit of context for this chapter 32 and 33 having a lot to do with grace. Because he says that I might find grace in thy sight. And it, it's mentioned elsewhere and later in this chapter, but that's the intention, that I might find grace in his brother Esau's sight. So he's seeking his brother to be gracious to him. To, excuse me. Yes, to be gracious to him as he comes to him. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau and also he cometh to meet thee with 400 men with him. Now I want you to think about that. He's seeking grace. He comes back. He gets this word from his, about his brother that his brother's coming to meet him and he has 400 men with him. And he doesn't analyze this wrong. He doesn't analyze this wrong. Brothers and sisters, think about this. So my wife and I, we just went to, we went to Oregon. And it takes quite a bit to organize even eight souls, myself included, to get in a van and travel. It's a big deal to have 400 men moving across the desert. That's not just happenstance. There's every reason to believe as... Jacob does to infer that his brother is coming with an army to kill him. Why wouldn't he believe that? That's why he's fearful to begin with as he travels home and, he, and he's coming home. 
And then it says in the seventh verse, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and so he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two bands. And we see this, Jacob, time and time again, trying to do things his own way, in his flesh, in his strength. I'm not faulting him necessarily. This is our human nature. He wants to make sure that he has opportunity to live and survive when Esau comes to him. And so he's like, I'm going to separate my company into two groups. And he says in verse 8, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. So he reasons that while the, the army is attacking and destroying all these souls and all of my goods, at least half of what I have in possessions, animals, and my family will be spared. So it won't be a total loss. Now, you, I want you to keep in mind, we're going to kind of exalt this thought later, but there's a lot of talk about animals. But there's, a, there's sons, young sons and wives, four wives, or well, two wives and, and two handmaidens that are here that he cares about. Okay? Don't mistake that. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and note this, he's now crying out to God, hoping in God's word, and the God of my father Isaac and, and, the, and the Lord, so he's saying, and the Lord which said unto me, return into thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. So he's saying, God, the last time that I talked to you, you told me to return home, and now, now what? Are you going to deliver on your promise? You told me to come home, and you would deal well with me. And then he goes on to praise God, and I love this. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over the Jordan, and now I become two bands. He says, the last time I passed this way, all I had was my staff. Now I'm coming back with a company, and it's all attributed to you, Lord. You said you'd do me good, but now I'm coming back with all the blessings that you've given me. What will become of me? But he says, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. I think it shows the heart of Jacob, too. He wasn't just worried about his losing livestock. He cared about his sons and, his, and their mothers. And then he brings us again. And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. He had given that promise back in Genesis 28. So he lodges there that same night and took of that which had came to his hand a present for Esau his brother. So now he, he's thinking critically. He's, he's going to try to further pacify his brother. So he takes 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milk, uh, camels, and their colts, 40 kine, 10 bulls, 20 she-asses, and 10 foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When he saw my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Who art, Whose art thou, and whither thou goest, and, whoso, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present. Send unto my lord Esau, and behold, also he is behind us. And so he commanded the second and the third, and all that followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us, 
For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face. Peradventure he will accept of me. He is, is thinking, if I, if I separate these groups, or as this King James says, droves, these groups of animals, and each of the servants say, my servant Jacob is behind this group, and then the other group says that, that will eventually pacify his brother by all of his gifts and all of his doings, and maybe Jacob will be merciful to him when he gets to him. Now, I don't want to wax long on this because I don't think this is a primary point, but it shows how we think about what we want to do for God so many times. And if we do this, this, and this, and this, then God will see it and he'll be merciful to us. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. Esau doesn't even notice until he's standing there. He asks him, he says, what about that? What was that all about? So it doesn't work, okay? It's spoiler alert. It does not work how he thinks it will. But that was his intentions, that he would be accepted of his brother Esau. So that night, 21st verse, so went the present over before him, and he himself lodged that night in the company. So he sends all the, the droves, and he's left there with the family. And he rose up that night and took his two wives, his two women servants, and his eleven sons passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them, and he sent them over the brook, and sent over that that he had. It's easy to, to just brush past the emotions this man felt. Everything that God had given him. Everything. Including his own life. Was now in the hands of Potentially of his brother, who had in the past sought to, for his life. And I want you to, to just think about this for a minute, because there's context here. Who he has sent over the river. The youngest of the sons was Joseph. He was about my son Gunther's age, about six. It's part of the lesson, too. The story of Joseph starts here, brothers and sisters. You think back in the Old Testament about one of the strongest and most powerful displays of God's grace. You find it as Joseph stood as almost acting Pharaoh. The brothers that had tried to kill him, and you wonder where that grace displayed came from. I'm certain that it was from God, but brothers and sisters, what this young man, this young boy, as it were, witnessing... The fear, the action on his father's part, knowing that his uncle could kill him. Seeing all the things that his dad is doing, and then the 23rd verse, he sent everything over that he had. The 24th verse, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Hosea says he had power over the angel, prevailed, he wept, and made supplication unto him. So this isn't just a typical wrestling. This is a man that is desperate. He's desperate for God's help, and he's praying to what we ultimately will find that Jacob 
and, and I, I'm probably not going to have time to break it down, but later in Genesis 48, he includes, he includes our Lord and the angel as synonymous. And so my conclusion is this angel is none but other than God himself that he wrestles with. Jacob was left alone and wrestled and made prayers with this man until the breaking of the day. And he saw that he prevailed not against him. He touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And I just think about this in terms of God being merciful to Jacob. You wrestle with God. When you wrestle, it's a contact sport, brothers and sisters. There's hands all over each other. And yet God, with his intention, just but touches his thigh and it goes out of joint. That's what we do when we wrestle in prayer. We wrestle against a God that is so powerful that he could kill us. But yet we come to him begging for mercy as Jacob is doing. And God says in the 26th verse, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And God said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And that might get overlooked, but brothers and sisters, there is a reckoning that we all must know that we have, especially as we see Jacob so many, many times, he's, he lied to his father, Isaac. He was manipulative all of these times. And God is saying, tell me who your name really is. Supplanter. He owns it. He finally owns it in the sake of when he needs God's mercy. And, and I think that there was a, uh, a pastor years ago that said this, this chapter is Jacob dealing with his yesterdays. All of the past sins have now caught up and he's facing his brother Esau and he cannot escape what he knows is inevitable and he has to own himself and says, my name is Jacob. I am that man. I am that man that's manipulative. I am that man. My name is Jacob. And God says to him in the 28th verse, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And then Jacob asked him his name and says, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou should ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face in my life. Is preserved. Brothers and sisters, that's grace. When you can meet God face to face and your life is preserved, you know you found grace. Thirty first verse, and I want you to think about this from two perspectives. Now, first, I want you to think about the 31st verse from the perspective of Jacob, now Israel. He doesn't know what's going to happen the next day, but he has confidence that God is on his side. He was potentially facing a battle, one that he couldn't fight, but he would, no doubt. But now he's lame. It actually says he's limping. As he comes across the sun's rising the very day that he had wrestled all night. He's without strength. He can't fight in the flesh anymore, brothers. This is a spiritual battle that the Lord must fight. And then there's the other perspective of the one Joseph on the other side of the of the river. Seeing his daddy come across. Doesn't know what happened all night, but he's not the same dad that he saw 
His dad is now limping, and he's weak. I don't know what he thought in his mind. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, which this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew. Chapter 33, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and beheld Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. You get this. He's ordering them, probably an age order, but the last that are lined up, is Joseph, his most favored and treasured son. He passed over before them. So he has them lined up, but Jacob, being now the man of God that he is, he goes clear to the front line. In front, Joseph is clear at the back. He goes past Rachel and he goes past the handmaiden. He goes past Leah's handmaiden and past the sons, Bilhah, and, and past Reuben and Simeon and Issachar and all of the sons of Israel. Clear to the front of the line, standing in front of Leah. He passes himself before them in the third verse, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him. He's still seeking mercy from his brother, and now we see Esau running to meet him, embraces him, and fell on his neck. And this is all being witnessed by the children. Certainly, consider Joseph. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and the children and said, who, who's, who are those with thee? And he said, These are the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near and they and their children bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel and they bowed themselves. So the last of all is young Joseph, six-year-old Joseph, bowing before his brother, or his uncle, Esau. This is all to, 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 that, that Esau would find grace in his sight, that they would not die. And now we see verse 8. Tides have turned. We have the truth. We know what Esau's intentions were here. And, and he says, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? What was with all those 555 animals that you sent? What, did you, what was going on there? And he said, oh, those were to find grace in thy sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that which thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. This, brothers and sisters, is Esau acting as if he were God. That's how Jacob felt. He said, I see your face and your grace that you're giving me as if I had seen God face to face. And as we consider this, the whole point of this story and this illustration to await us in hoping in God's promises is trusting that against hope, against what we see that he was able to meet, what God had called him to do, to go home, and I will deal graciously with thee. I will give you good things, despite the odds, 
despite knowing that he was facing imminent doom, despite knowing that his brother was possibly coming to kill him, he trusted in God's promises. He trusted in God's word, as we heard from Psalm 130. And then, by wanting to receive grace, we see a young man, Joseph, that had witnessed grace years later, some 30 years later, was able to give that demonstrated grace that he so desperately needed at one time in his life and save his brothers. We cannot, and I repeat, we cannot give grace unless we have received it. That is certainly the lesson here today. If we know what it is to receive God's grace, we are not only expected to give grace to others, we are commanded to give grace to others. We find that in, in Matthew 18 as Jesus cast that unprofitable servant away. And as I see this, I just am so amazed I'm just going to read Ephesians 2 here. I had it in my, and, and it says that in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness through, toward us through Christ Jesus. This grace is extended and will continue to extend, but it's, it's promoted in our churches, brothers and sisters. Those of you that have received God's riches and God's grace, that have met God face to face and he spared your life, that means that you recognize your sin was against God and he had every right as Esau to take and spare, to take away your life, to take away every good thing that you had ever given or he had ever given you. And he restores it and says, I have enough. I love you, brother. That's where we are. God's riches at Christ's expense. It has been a blessing to be in God's word with you this week. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. And let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All of his iniquities. Amen. What shall we sing? Such a rich message. Messages over the last five uh, e the evenings and, and then the climax today. If you still have your Bibles open to Psalm 130. I really appreciate the progression that our brother has taken throughout this series. In Psalm 130, as he has pointed out, we have found depth and despair. It's where this psalm begins. In verse 4, we have found forgiveness. In 5 and 6, we found patience. Verse 7, hope. 
mercy, and plenteous redemption. And the summary of it all, as he said, is abounding grace. And I love that phrase because grace isn't just a little bit, but it is abounding. And I praise God for the the richness that we have found in this psalm and the many other psalms and scriptures that we've been taught of through this series. I thought of Psalm 40 as a summary. Speaks about all these things in the first three verses. I waited patiently on the Lord. And he inclined unto me. That means he came after me. He picked me up also out of an horrible pit. That speaks of depth and despair. And for those of you that have experienced depth and despair, please realize, as our brother so capably told us, God came down into that depth, into that despair. He came down there to get us and to pick us up out of that horrible pit, out of the miry clay. The Bible says he set our feet upon a rock. I believe that to be the rock Jesus Christ. And he established our goings. And he hath put a new song in our mouth that others can see it and praise the Lord. I thank God, though I was in my depths and in despair, God saw my need. He picked me up. And progressively, as we have went through Scripture, out of that clay pit, and he established our goings, and he has put a new song in our mouth. I praise God for his abounding grace. And not just that that grace came after us, according to Psalm 40, but our brother said it is the very strength of our faith. There is strength in grace. It's not a cheap grace. It is not just overlooking someone or something. There is strength in, in that grace and there is power in it. And that is the power of the cross, Jesus Christ. Strength in abounding grace. I'm going to ask our brother to lead us in a closing prayer. Let's bow before him. Heavenly Father, you've been so merciful to me. Thank you for speaking from your word. Thank you for opening all of our hearts this week. Thank you for being gracious to us. Lord, that we would assemble together because we want to worship you. I ask that you can bless the souls that are here. Father, so many times we call on your name and we call on so many 
things that we need in our lives. And there are so many needs here. Both spiritual and natural. And Lord, I think the greatest need of all is to see you. Find your righteousness as our own. And to trust in you. Have peace to what you said you will accomplish. Lord, I know that there will be lives lost in the next years going forward here. There will be births. There will be joys, but there will be sorrows. I ask for your continued hand here at Cornerstone. And my prayer would be for those that are seeking. Father, that you would answer. That you would come to them. That you would incline your ear. That your spirit would fill them. And they would be met with joy and gladness. Finding Christ. Lord, I want to ask for special blessing for the ministry here can guide them strengthen them Lord I ask for those that are teachers Sunday school teachers and the like that you would bless them and their teachers teachings and studyings and that there is hope it gets kind of monotonous sometimes we know that even the foolishness of preaching Father be with the parents here at Cornerstone that you would guide them encourage them Allow them to show love to their children, love to their spouses. The older here at Cornerstone, I pray that you would give them joy. Let them find their place here as encouragers, as teachers. Don't let them feel cast off. And to the younger generations, Father, I pray that you would give them a zeal for the Lord and purity. They can follow after you with truth, verity. God, thank you for the cool weather this week and bringing us together here safely every night. I want to thank you for the meal that's being prepared. All the natural blessings that you've given us. Father, you give us good things because you are a father that loves us, and we thank you so much for that. Father, I want to thank you for this week. Pray for strength for me going forward as well. Pray this all through your son, Jesus. Amen.